You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is not their strength or military prowess that made the Amazons extraordinary, but rather their capacity as role models. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Today, dear one, is our first episode in celebration and recognition of Black History Month, and our topic comes from a listener recommendation. So big shout out to her. She knows who she is. I am a huge Marvel Universe fan. My brother has loved Marvel and DC for as long as I can remember, and we have these huge <laughs> encyclopedias in his room full of every Marvel character ever. And we would look through these books for hours, reading about the characters and looking at all their different superpowers and choosing who would be on our team and who we would be. So it feels like an amazing full circle moment covering this topic today. So, our first Woman Warrior episode of 2022 is none other than the Dahomey Amazon women, the real-life Wakandan Dora Milaje warriors. So without further ado, grab your shield and your spear, my friend, and let's get to it. Researching for this topic has been a journey. I know very little about the history of African countries with the exception of like Egypt and South Africa. So I had to start from the bottom. And that's where we're going to start today. Before we talk about the Dahomey Amazons, let's talk about where they come from. The kingdom of Dahomey is now modern day Benin, but the kingdom itself lasted for 400 years, formally becoming a kingdom from 1600 until 1904. It formed when a mixture of various local ethnic groups on the Abome Plain came together. And don't worry, I'm going to put pictures on Instagram so you can visualize all of this. Because if you're anything like me, geography is hard. And I am the worst history teacher when it comes to <laughs> geography. The first king of Dahomey is considered to be Hawik Baja, who ruled from 1645 to 1685. He was the one who built the royal palaces of Abomey and began raiding and taking over towns outside the Abomey Plateau. Dahomey became a truly powerful kingdom in the 1720s when it conquered the coastal kingdoms of Alada and Huayda. The Dahomey kingdom then took control of the trade ports as well as the ports that were connected to the transatlantic trade of enslaved people. The kingdom of Dahomey became the most powerful in all of West Africa until the 19th century, 
when colonizers did what colonizers do, and after abolishing said transatlantic trade, the European powers began to race to colonize Africa. Their goal was to seize the African country's immense natural wealth. And that's what those assets did. But we will come back to that later on in this episode. Now, even though the kingdom of Dahomey is no more, the Dahomey people, who are actually known as the Fawn, Dahomey is the place and the Fawn are the people, are still very much alive and well, and uphold the culture and traditions that have been passed down for almost 500 years. Dance, music, art, and fearlessness are all important to the Fawn people, and we're going to talk more about these things as the episode goes on. So TK, where do the Dahomey Amazons come in? Excellent question, my friend, and thank you so much for your patience. We've got to start off with the name the Dahomey Amazons, which is actually not, is not what the Dahomey Amazons are called. This name was given to them by the European colonizers because they resembled the Greek Amazonian women warriors. And they were hella sexualized by Western media. So we are not going to call them the Dahomey Amazons. And you're going to see that they are less like the Amazons and more like the freaking Spartans. Some sources call them the Mino or the Minan, which is a Fawn word for mother. But this too was not what the Fawn called them. The actual name for the Dahomey Amazons are the Agoji. And it's, I think it's important to call things and people by their proper name. So for the rest of the episode, I will be referring to the Dahomey Amazons as the Agogia Warriors. The Agogia did not come to be until the 1700s, and their origin is a little bit cloudy. But the most widely accepted story is that they started out as teams of female hunters known as the Gbeto. They were fierce women that would hunt in groups to bring down big game like freaking elephants. A French naval surgeon named Repin reported in the 1850s that a group of 20 Gbeto had attacked a herd of 40 elephants, killing three but at the cost of several hunters who were gored and trampled but it was considered a huge success. A traditional Dahomey story tells of a time when King Gezo, from 1818 to 1858, praised the Gebeto's courage, and the Gebeto replied with all the sass and gusto that one might muster that a nice manhunt would suit them even better than an elephant. So King Gezo drafted them into his army, But there is no hard evidence for this story, and most scholars prefer an alternate theory that suggests that the women warriors came into existence as a palace guard in the 1920s due to a lack of men in the kingdom from fighting in many battles with neighboring kingdoms. According to the Smithsonian, backing for this hypothesis can be found in the writings of Commodore Arthur Erdely Wilmont, a British naval officer who went to Dahomey and observed that women heavily outnumbered men in these towns, a phenomenon that he attributed to a combination of military losses and the effects of the trade of enslaved people. Another contributing factor was the fact that 
men were not allowed in the palace at night, so what use would a male guard be for the king if they had to, like, you know, clock out real quick at the end of the day? They would be absolutely useless. But regardless of their origin story, their history and their prowess is unquestionable. The Agoji warriors started out as the king's personal guard, much like the Dora Milaje for King T'Challa. But unlike their Wakandan counterparts, the Agoji were selected in very different ways. They were first selected from the king's third-class wives, who were the ones considered insufficiently beautiful to share his bed and who had not born children yet, which rude, okay? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder friend. So, to you, but I digress. Other women were recruited in some not-so-savory ways. Every three years, and later every year, the king would send the Agoji to villages within the kingdom to collect tributes. They would be between the age of 12, and some accounts say even 8 years old, to 25. Some of these women and girls volunteered, but many of them were voluntold for various reasons. Some were too strong-willed and refused to marry, and others had committed a crime like adultery, and sometimes it was the luck of the draw and the families of young girls had to offer tribute. Still, others were selected from among enslaved people bought and sold with the Europeans. They lived hard but almost sacred lives. They were allowed alcohol, tobacco, servants, and could even own enslaved people, which their male counterparts could not do. They lived with all of their needs taken care of within the palace grounds. By becoming an Algoji, these women, whatever their background, became part of a community kept separate from the rest of the kingdom. During royal ceremonies, for example, they were physically separated from male soldiers and guards by a line of woven raffia leaves, referred to as the bamboo line in a lot of literature discussing the Dahomey. And even when they weren't doing ceremony stuff and just living their lives, they were treated with extreme reverence. If they ever went to the village, they would be preceded by a female servant ringing a small bell to alert people of their arrival. The villagers were required to make way for them and give them enough space to walk through because to touch an Ogoji warrior meant death. And to even look upon them directly was not allowed. So the people had to avert their eyes as the Agoji walked by. But this treatment came at an extremely high price. They ate, slept, and breathed ferocity. They were trained to have no fear and were required to do intense training, like climbing thorned bushes, a la boot camp style obstacle course. They had to fight each other in hand-to-hand combat and even participate in an annual event where new recruits were required to mount a platform that was 16 feet high, which is like five meters high, and then they had to pick up baskets containing bound and gagged prisoners of war and hurl them over a wall to a frenzied mob below that would kill them if they weren't already dead by being thrown over a wall. There was... It was... 
I can't even move on. I was going to say something else, but it's a, that's so intense. That is so intense. Like, I wrote this script, <laughs> but I'm also flabbergasted as I am reading it. So I just wanted to pause really quick to, to process that. All right, moving on. There were also accounts of female soldiers being ordered to carry out executions. Jean Bayol, a French naval officer who visited Dahomey, watched a teenage Agoji recruit named Nasiska, who had not yet killed anyone, be tested and brought before a young prisoner who sat bound and gagged in a basket. Jean Bayol wrote, she walked jauntily up to and swung her sword three times with both hands then calmly cut the last flesh that attached the head to the trunk. She then squeezed the blood off of her weapon and swallowed it. Is that not the most metal thing that you have ever heard? That's so metal. Good Lord, see, see, I told you they were more like Spartans than the Amazons. Did the Amazons do this? I don't know. I need to learn more about the Amazons. I know a bit about the Spartans, and I feel like this is more Spartan behavior than Amazon behavior. <sighs> Anyways, I digress. They also performed magical religious rituals of Voodoo, which is known as voodoo in the West, to help in their training to kill without hesitation. These ladies were hardcore. If you hadn't already guessed it, by now, they are some hardcore ladies. Their mission, their goal in life was to be better than men in every aspect. And this goal was recorded in their songs and dances that they often performed during ceremonies, before and during training, as well as in like hype music to get them ready for battle. To just constantly remind themselves to be better than Everybody else, especially men. And according to European travelers, they went above and beyond this goal. The Agoji were better organized, faster, and much braver than the men. As time went on, the Agoji expanded with each new ruler. Throughout its, its, its existence, its existence, the women's army, I'm too excited about this, the women's army of Dahomey expanded its structure into several regiments and gradually modernized its equipment through the acquisition of firearms. The women's army was strengthened particularly, particularly, goodness, I need to calm down particularly during the reign of three major kings. The first being King Gezo, who reigned from 1818 to 1858. He was the one who changed the recruitment schedule from every three years to every year. After this, his successors, Glele and Beanzin, continued this policy of modernization. In the mid-19th century, the number of Agoji was estimated at several thousand, making up 30 to 40% of the army. At the end of the 19th century, the Agoji were separated into five distinct groups. The huntresses, the rifle women, the reapers, the archers, and the gunners. They had distinct uniforms, weapons, and rankings in the king's army. 
The most dangerous of these Agoji warriors were the reapers. In the Fon language, Nick Plohento. There were only a few of them, but boy, howdy, were they scary AF. They had razor-sharp knives that were attached to poles. They were these big old giant knives that were attached to these long-ass poles. And they were super sharp, and they could slice a person in two with a single blow. They had a fearful reputation. And the Reapers gave the Kingdom of Dahomey a huge psychological upper hand over their enemies. And a myth-like status was created around the most fierce of the already deadly Agoji warrior women. In the Black Panther movie, the Dora Milaje are a symbol of feminism and enlightened, powerful women. They are the moral compass of Wakanda. But reality is less beautiful and straightforward. The Kingdom of Dahomey became the most powerful in Western Africa, in part due to their connection with the Atlantic trade of enslaved people. The Agoji played a major role in capturing and transporting people who would be sold to European enslavers. Many of the Agoji themselves came from villages that had been raided by the very warrior women they now stood next to in battle. In an amazing documentary called Warrior Women with Lupita Nyong'o, one of the actresses of Black Panther, we are shown the reality of the effects the Agoji had on the trade of enslaved people. And at the risk of spoiling a huge twist in the film, we discover that the family of someone very close to the project was directly influenced by the Agoji raids. But I don't believe that there is any merit in condemning the actions of the Agoji. It's certainly not my place to say if they should have fought against human trafficking or that they should have done XYZ because they themselves were victims of their own circumstances. And there are vastly more qualified people than myself to discuss this topic. Like Adobia Tricia Nuambi, who wrote an extremely powerful and sensitive article for the Wall Street Journal on this very topic, and I will leave a link to it in the show notes, so please go take a look at that. So why would you mention this in the first place, TK? Great question, dear one. As a tour guide to the past, I think that it's my job I don't think I know. It is. It is my job to show you all the aspects of a topic, not just the bright and beautiful side, because that's not history. That's not reality. And humans are so much more nuanced and complicated and complex. And it would be an injustice to the memory of what history is if I just gave you a flat retelling of a topic. And, you know, that's my, that's my two cents on the whole thing. <laughs> but I will digress back to our topic. In 1884, a bunch of European countries got together with no leaders from the continent of Africa. And they were deciding how to divvy up Africa. Once again, with no African leaders present at this meeting. 
and this meeting of asshats was called the Berlin Conference of 1884. Dahomey and other African kingdoms were being divided up and stolen by various European countries, and France called dibs on Dahomey. In 1889, female troops were involved in an incident that resulted in a full-scale war with France. According to local oral histories, the spark came when the Agoji attacked a village under the French rule, whose chief tried to make people stop panicking by flying the French flag. He was under the impression that this would keep him and his people safe, but it did not. According to the story, an Agoji general asked the chief when the village had been overrun, quote, so you like this flag, end quote. And then the general signaled one of the warrior women to behead the chief, and she carried his head back to her new king, wrapped in the French flag. Yeah, you could say that France got pretty freaking mad. And... That was the freaking powder keg that launched Dahomey and France into an all-out war. This was called the First Franco-Dahomeyan War. And we're about to get a little bit into military history, which I loathe entirely. But trust me when I say <laughs> you're going to want to hear this. There were two major battles in which the Ogoji fought. And one of them was done in a secret underground city. These ladies went hard on the guerrilla warfare and created an entire system of caves and tunnels so that they could pop up and shoot the French and then disappear before they even knew what happened. You can see them in the documentary that I told you about earlier. I highly, highly, I cannot even tell you how much I highly recommend the documentary. You really need to go watch it. Anyways, this war lasted from February 21st, 1890 to October 4th, 1890. It was a relatively short war, but it had major losses on both sides even though the Dahomey were like way smaller than France they freaking kicked France as ass but eventually would lose or come to a truce on the 3rd of October 1890 when the Dahomey leader signed a treaty recognizing the kingdom of Porto Novo as a French protectorate which basically meant that the kingdom of Dahomey was under French control. And things were pretty peaceful. Air quotes. Peaceful. For about two years. But then, shit got real again. Real fast. And it was all-out war. For a long-ass time this time. From July 4th, 1892 to January 5th, 1894. It was like two years of battle after battle after battle. And during this time, between six and fifth. 15,000 Agoji would die in battle, but they would take their fair share of French soldiers with them. In the final battle between the French and the Dahomey, about 1,500 women warriors took the field, and in true Agoji fashion, they fought tooth and nail to the very last warrior. By the end of the battle, only about 50 remained fit for active duty. But even when the battle was over, which, by the way, the Agoji were the last to surrender, it is rumored that the survivors took their revenge on the French by covertly substituting themselves for, like, regular Dahomey women who were not soldiers but were taken as prisoners, 
and each of them allowed herself to be seduced by a French officer. And then they waited for him to fall asleep and then cut his throat with his own bayonet. Boom. Final revenge. But even with these last efforts at resistance, the French would overtake the kingdom of Dahomey. Popular history suggests that this was the end of the Agoji warriors. But they are wrong, my friend. They still live on in the now free and independent People's Republic of Benin. Though they may no longer subject themselves to the harsh training of their ancestors, nor behead their foes, they are alive and well, carrying with them the songs, dances, and spirit of their fierce warrior sisters. There are many women soldiers in Benin's armed forces today, and they keep the memory of the Agoji alive. Oh, my friend, we have come to our final thought, and I literally have goosebumps. I am so excited. Do you know when you just get so excited and you sound so intelligent in your brain, and then when the words come out, it's basically just excited gobbledygook? That was me for basically this entire episode because I love this topic so much. And I love this final thought, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. So... This is a spoiler alert for the Warrior Women documentary that I have been telling you about, which please, please go watch it. Anyways, so Lupita Nyong'o in 2019 goes to the People's Republic of Benin, right? And visits the elected king, Da Sagaju Glele, to find out more about the Agoji. And she is invited to the sacred hall where all the agoji and Dahomey art and artifacts and history and oral traditions are kept, and she is shown a very old stone painting with panthers, panthers on each side, and a staircase, like, pyramid of swords leading to two cross swords on top, and the legend she is told is bananas. So here it goes. I'm going to tell you right now. So the first king of Dahomey transformed himself into a panther and in a very Zeus-like style had a baby with a woman. And now all the descendants of the panther king, the first king of Dahomey, have panther power. <laughs> and the swords represent the Agoji who are sworn to protect the rulers of Dahomey. Does that not sound exactly like Black Panther? <sighs> goosebumps. Literal goosebumps. And the cross swords at the top kind of remind me of a little bit of a Wakanda forever. This is a little bit of a Wakanda forever moment, you know, with the, the arm gesture. Whew. So freaking cool. I love when reality and fantasy meet together, it's so freaking cool. It's so freaking cool. Go watch this documentary, my friend. Please go watch it. Thank you so much, dear one, for joining me on today's episode. I hope you enjoy the incredible story of the Ogoji Warriors as much as I did. I am absolutely loving our new warrior women series because I just feel so freaking good 
after hearing about all these badass ladies, and I hope you feel good and empowered after hearing about them too. And if you want to help more people hear about these badass ladies, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform because it's super helpful. It's helpful with the algorithm to show more people for the Love of History podcast. Or you can tell a friend about this episode because word of mouth is one of the best ways to help your favorite podcast grow. And yes, I am implying that this is your favorite podcast. So if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can donate on Patreon or Good Pods, and links to that are in the show notes. And all proceeds, 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 all proceeds go directly back into the podcast to help me make the best possible content for you. And before I say goodbye, please take a big old swig of your water right now, you dehydrated little delightful human. And be kind to yourself this week, and I will see you next Friday when we talk about the real women behind the movie Hidden Figures. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>